In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things that came into being happened through Him, Father. That's what Your Word says, and that He became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. You said that when He came to His own, His own nation, His own, for the most part, did not receive Him. But you said that as many as will receive him, to them you have given the authority, the power, the right to be deemed by you as children of God. We're so grateful for the incarnation because we know it led to the cross. And by your resurrection and ascension, Lord Jesus, just as you promised, you've sent the Spirit to live in us, to change us, to make us new creations. We love you and want to know you more fully. Thank you that all Scripture is given by your breath. And we ask our Father as we study this prophet that our lives would be changed. So as an act of worship before you this morning, I present you this sermon and ask that you would be pleased with the words that come from my mouth and the meditation of my heart. We ask for the meetings tonight as our children will meet across this campus in Bible study and scripture memory, that your blessing would be on them and all their teachers. And as we have our meet the pastor meeting for our visitors, that you would bless that as well. We ask it all in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. I want to invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to the prophet Jonah chapter 1. Now, be careful in finding it. If two or three pages stick together in your Bible, you could easily miss it. But it's easy to find. It's right after the book of Obadiah, all right? If you find the Psalms, which is about dead center, and scan a little bit to the right, you will soon come to this little book, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. If uh, you're new to the Bible, you might want to use your table of contents. It will give you the page number that it begins. Now, I am very pleased that God has given me the opportunity to preach this book. I preached it about 25 years ago and did just a handful of sermons in it. But I've been working on it for the last six months, and as best I can tell, I'm planning to do 10 messages from this short little book. Now, if you know the prophets of old, you know they are men for all seasons. They spoke about war, peace, violence, justice, love, faithfulness. And what they said was not just for the people of Israel, it's for God's people throughout the ages. And in many ways, it's been correctly said that the Old Testament prophets were the voice of Israel's conscience. And they had a twofold ministry. One was to afflict the comfortable, but also to comfort the afflicted. And so I want to introduce you to one of those 17 prophets we call major and minor prophets, not because some are more important than others, but based on the length of their material. It's a 4th century AD designation, but it can be helpful. And I want to introduce you to the prophet Jonah, but be careful. As you study him, you may meet your own conscience because the message that he gives is penetrating and powerful. Now, Paul said all Scripture is inspired. It's God-breathed, theos pneumos. Literally, it's the breath of God Almighty. What you are reading on the pages in front of you is if you could take God's breath and write it down in ink, that's what we have. And many times, sadly, mistakenly, Christians think, well, the Old Testament is for another era, for another age. But remember what the Apostle Paul said to the church at Rome, for what was written in earlier times 
Of course, the earlier times he's speaking of concern the Tanakh. Tanakh is what the Jews call the Old Testament. Torah, Nephaim, Ketuvim, the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. One way of summarizing their Bible. We call it the Old Testament because we have a full revelation and we're distinguishing between the old deal, the new deal, the old covenant, the new covenant. We are recipients of the new covenant. But whatever was written in earlier times in the Old Testament was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. In other words, when the Holy Spirit of God moved on man of old to give us the Old Testament, it was not just written for their day, but for our day. Paul is reminding us that the instruction and the application of the Old Testament did not expire itself with that error. Remember, in the early church for a long time, they had not the first book of the New Testament. So when the church was started, they, they preached the Old Testament scriptures because, of course, the scriptures speak of Christ. It's written our, for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages have come. Now, if you know Jonah, he is a member of an elite group of prophets. He is one who does not do any miracles, but he is a prophet that has miracles done to him. And in either case, when you study this man, there are some valuable timeless lessons that we do not want to miss. There's an urgency in the miracles that God did through Jonah that Jesus will highlight for us. We'll touch on it today. We'll explore it more deeply in the weeks to come. Now, if you're here for the first time, there's a note-taking outline. If you're listening online, you can print it out. I have four simple objectives today. Let me at least give them to you so if your mind wanders or you fall asleep, when you wake up, you'll at least know where we are. First, I want to deal with the historical background of the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah will make little sense to you, like most of the prophets, unless you understand at what time frame in Israel's history they were in ministry. Second, I hope to give us an overview, a big picture of the book so we can see how it all fits together. Third, I want to share with you four basic approaches that people take, the basic approaches people take to studying the prophet. Only one is correct, and we'll see why. And then fourth, just a brief introduction. We'll crack the door on the first verse of Jonah 1. All right, so there on your note-taking outline, we begin this morning with the historical background of the book of Jonah. Now, I know maybe for some of you, history was not your favorite subject. But it's important to understand the historical setting. In order to appreciate Jonah or really any of the 17 major and minor prophets in the Bible, you always want to know at what time frame they ministered. If I were to take your Bible and just kind of scan through it, for many of us, the Old Testament is largely clean, maybe with the exception of the Proverbs and the Psalms. And one of the reasons is because we're intimidated by the Old Testament. We can't put it together historically. And maybe we have a desire to read through the Bible in a year and we start working through it and we get hung up in the pots and pans division of the book of Leviticus and we end up stopping. So let me set the historical, pro uh, historical context in which this man lived and ministered. If you remember, God promised through a man named Abram, later renamed Abraham, to bless all the nations of the world. How could through one man all the nations of the world be blessed? Because through this new nation that God will start, he will bring the savior of the world, the Messiah. And if you remember, Abraham initially had two sons. He had the son of the bondwoman named Ishmael. And then he had the miracle born baby with Sarah known as Isaac. 
The son of promise was Isaac. It's through Isaac's descendants that the Messiah is going to come. That does not mean, as it is falsely taught, that Ishmael went to hell. Abraham loved Ishmael. Abraham built into Ishmael's life. You will meet Ishmael in heaven. That's a gross abuse of Romans, the ninth chapter, and I have a whole message on it. But both boys couldn't be progenitors for the Messiah. And God in His providence and sovereignty chose that Isaac would be the son of promise. He in turn had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob becomes the son of promise. If you remember, he has 12 sons. Ishmael has 12 sons. They become uh, progenitors for 12 tribes of what we call today the Arab nations. And here's Jacob, and he has 12 sons, and they form the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. There's a point when God changes Jacob's name to Israel, and so they are typically referred to as the sons of Israel. Well, in Genesis 15, God continues to unfold His covenant with Abraham, and He gives him a word of prophecy. Listen to these words, Genesis 15, 13. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. So a famine comes on the land due to the severity of the famine. The 12 tribes head down to Egypt. God in His providence chose to preserve the nation of Israel and the surrounding nations, including Egypt, through Joseph. What his brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. And so they go to the land of Egypt where there is plenty of food and then seven years of severe famine. Well, after Joseph dies, there arose a new king the Scripture says that did not know Joseph. And so the people, just as God had prophesied to Abraham, end up in bondage for 400 years. But after the 400 years is over, if you remember, God raises up Moses. He, we've been studying him on Wednesday nights. And he becomes a deliverer. Someone asked me this week on the Bible line about Moses. He is likened to the prophet to come. Moses and Christ are very similar in, in a number of ways. And if uh, you're interested in that answer, it's a 10-minute answer. You can go to the Bible line at wagp.net. Um, but once in the promised land, of course, Moses does not enter because of um, an act of, of pride. And so he dies on top of Mount Nebo, and Joshua leads the people into the promised land. After Joshua dies in one generation, degeneration takes place. And then a terrible period of ups and downs known as the time of the judges began. There's a book that describes that, of course, the book of Judges. And when the people look at the surrounding nations, they want a human king like the other nations have. And so we enter into a new period of time known as the period of the kingdom or the period of the monarchy. And of course, the first three kings in Israel's history were the most famous, SDS, Saul, David, Solomon. Each of them ruled for 40 years for a total of 120 years. For 120 years, the kingdom is united. And if you remember from 1 Kings 11, Solomon's heart is drawn away by foreign women who lead him into idolatrous behavior. And so God told him he was going to split the kingdom because of his disobedience. But for the sake of his father, David, he would wait until his son came to the throne. Listen to these words, 1 Kings 11, verse 1. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women. And then in verse 4 of that chapter, it says, For it came about when Solomon was old... 
His wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of his father David had been. And let me just say in passing this morning, you cannot take the clear instruction from the word of God and set it aside without consequence. You can't live with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. And so because of the obstinacy and the greed of Solomon, the kingdom ended up splitting. Here's a map that shows you pictures for us, what it was like in his day. Uh, The northern section became known as Israel. Ten tribes broke away from the 12 tribes, and they were known as Israel. The capital was Samaria. There was two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and so the southern section of Israel became known as Judah. So the northern kingdom, it's known as Israel. Sometimes it's called the house of Samaria. Sometimes it's called the house of Joseph. Sometimes it's called Ephraim. And the southern kingdom is just called Judah. Now, this is important because when you read the Old Testament, sometimes you read Israel and you're thinking all 12 tribes. Got to ask what context is the word being used in? Because sometimes when the word Israel is being used, it's specifically referring to the northern kingdom. Now, if you remember, both the northern and the southern kingdom both had 20 kings. All 20 kings in the northern kingdom were evil. There were 20 kings in the southern kingdom, 12 were evil, eight were righteous kings. So God sends these different prophets to the northern kingdom to say, look, you need to repent of your sin and of your idolatry. Of course, the first king, Rehoboam, who uh, comes to the throne in the northern kingdom, he doesn't want the people, or or Jeroboam, he doesn't want the people to, uh, Rehoboam is the king in the southern kingdom, but Jeroboam, he's in the northern kingdom, he doesn't want the people to go back to Jerusalem and worship, so he creates some new worship centers. And with time, the new capital for the northern kingdom becomes Samaria. And so centuries later, the Lord Jesus meets a woman at the well, and she asks a pertinent question. Where do you think we should worship? The Jewish people say down there in Jerusalem. We as Samaritans say up here in Samaria. But that comes from centuries before when the worship centers were moved in disobedience because God had set his name on just one city, Jerusalem, as the place of worship. So he sends these different prophets to the northern kingdom. Repent, or I'm going to judge you. And they don't repent. And so in 722 B.C., God sends the Assyrians, and they carry away the 10 northern tribes. God sends more prophets to the southern kingdom. Repent, or God is going to judge you. 136 years go by, and on 586 B.C., the final of three carrying away is done, and the southern kingdom is carried off. The Babylonians overthrow the Assyrians. They eventually come down, get the southern kingdom, and carry them off to Babylon. It's easy to keep straight. A comes before B, I comes before J. So you have the Assyrians who come before the Babylonians, and you have Israel that comes before Judah, all right? Now, that's important. So when you read an Old Testament prophet, you always want to ask at what point in Israel's history is this person in ministry? Did they preach before the exile when the kingdom was divided? Did they preach during the exile, or did they preach after the exile? If they preached before the exile, we typically refer to them as pre-exilic prophets. And if they preached before the exile, did they preach to the northern kingdom or did they preach to the southern kingdom? And there's a few who are involved in both. 
During the exile, it's easy to remember, there's just two prophets who preach, Daniel and Ezekiel. They're called exilic prophets. After the exile, we call them post-exilic prophets. There's just three. There's Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, who comes, of course, at the end of our Bibles. So when you understand that Jonah was a pre-exilic prophet, there's a historical note that God will give us that we'll look at today as to what king he was in ministry to, which dates him 750 BC, which tells us he's preaching to the northern kingdom. And when we understand that, the book of Jonah is going to come alive for us. So again, the Old Testament is often a closed book to us because we can't put it together historically, but it's not as complicated as we might make it. So Jonah, he's a pre-exilic prophet, lived 750 years before Christ, preaching to the northern kingdom. Secondly, beyond the historical background of the book, let's think for a moment about the overview of the book of Jonah, the overview of the book of Jonah. I think if we can climb a contextual tree here, we can get the big picture. And when you get the big picture of any book of the Bible, the component parts take on much more meaning. See, sometimes we think of a book of the Bible and we say, I'm not sure what's in that book. We kind of just go blank. But if you read a book several times over, you begin to see how it all fits together. And it becomes a tool not just in your own life, but in your ministry to other people as well. And so uh, if you read and reread the book, and so I'm going to do the introductory sermon today. We have a special Sunday, the next three Sundays, and then we'll come back at the first of the year. So for the next month, I want you to do a deep dive into the book of Jonah. Study it as much as you can. Find out as much as you can about the book of Jonah. That will make our time of study that much more meaningful. Again, it only takes about 15 minutes to read, and if you read it and reread it, you'll discover that the book basically centers around two commissions. You look for structural markers, like if you read uh, Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, we have a divine outline for the book of Acts. Well, when you read the book of Jonah, you see there are two key structural markers, and under those two key structural markers, in turn, there's two divisions. So the first structural marker comes right in the beginning of the book. We read in Jonah 1, 1 and 2, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Then when you come to chapter 3 in verses 1 and 2, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, same message, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So there's the major divisions. Here's a chart maybe to help you to put it together. I made this chart actually in the 1980s. I copyrighted it in 1990. I saw someone else using it recently. They were born after I made the chart. (laughs) In either case, uh, the first commission of Jonah is covered in the first two chapters. The geographical setting is on the sea. The second half of Jonah deals with the recommission of Jonah, and the focus is in the city of Nineveh. You can further subdivide this book. In chapter 1, you're dealing with the prodigal prophet. He's running away from God in disobedience. In chapter 2, he's in the belly of the great fish. We would call him the praying prophet. There we go, second, the praying prophet. In chapter 3, we have the preaching prophet. He's in the city preaching to over 600,000 people. And then in chapter 4, sitting under his little tree, uh, he is the pouting prophet. So 
in chapter 1. Uh, he is uh, running from God. He's the prodigal prophet. He's praying in chapter 2. You'd pray too if you were in the belly of a great fish. In chapter 3, he's preaching in obedience, but he's kind of moaning and groaning at the end of the book. So in the beginning of the book, he is absent without love. We call him the AWOL prophet, A-W-O-L. At the end of the book, he's angry without love. And so we'll see, though, that this man finished well, contrary to maybe what some of us think. So that's the big picture of the book. Read it. Again, it will only take you about 15 minutes. Maybe read it once a week. If you want to read it more, fantastic. But at least read it once a week between now and the 1st of January. Now, beyond the historical background and the overview, let me share with you the basic approaches to studying the book of Jonah. And we'll hone on this this morning. And this is really important. I want to share four basic approaches that different people have taken in studying this prophet. I suppose there are a few books of the Bible that are more maligned, more attacked, and more ridiculed than the book of Jonah. And that's significant because Satan and his critics don't go after secondary targets, they go after primary targets. Satan knows that if he can cause you to doubt the historicity of even the book of Jonah, then he can cause you to doubt other portions of the Scripture. And that's always been his methodology from the beginning, the father of lies there in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say? He causes people to doubt the Word of God. And you soon discover, especially books that are filled with the miraculous, because a natural, unregenerate mind cannot embrace the miraculous, he will attack those books. Um, you know, for them to believe that God sent this great fish to uh, swallow up Jonah and preserve him and to deliver him to this spot, that, that's just sheer nonsense to them. But listen, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And if he disguises himself as an angel of light, so don't his servants. So four basic approaches. Because of the miraculous, some conclude this is just myth. This is just a fictional story. It's a cute little story for children. Uh, it's kind of like the story of Hercules, or maybe in more recent time, the story of Robinson Crusoe or Gulliver's Travel. Delightful little story, but not an ounce of history to it. The layman's Bible commentary, it says this regarding the book of Jonah. It says, the great fish appointed to swallow up Jonah is not intended to be taken literally. It is the author's way of getting the prophet back as quickly as possible to his task, and as such fits in quite well with the story. Jesus' reference to the sign of Jonah has no bearing on the historicity of the book or the literal character of the tale. So for the liberal scholar, because he has trouble with the miraculous, he has trouble with the creator, it's just a little piece of fiction. Now, think about it, because people think very superficially, even evangelical Christians sometimes, about the book of Jonah. Let me give you a pop quiz. Fill in the blank with the first answer that comes to your mind. Zacharias climbed the sycamore tree. Adam and Eve. Oh, this is really weak. Adam and Eve. All right. I think you're there. You're awake. All right. Noah built the ark. Elijah was up on top of Mount Carmel. Daniel was in the lion's den. Jonah and the whale. All right, so you see, part of the problem is with these biblical accounts is that we only study them on a surface level. We think of the sensational 
and we miss the finer points in the, in the process. Now, obviously, there's a whole lot more to Zacchaeus than just climbing a sycamore tree. There's a whole lot more to Daniel than being in the lion's den. There's a whole lot more to Noah than building a gigantic ark. And there's a whole lot more to Jonah than just being captured and protected and preserved in a great fish. The King James says, well, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But what I want you to see this morning is that when we think of Jonah, very often we just think of Jonah and the whale. But this is more than a fish story. In fact, it's not a fish story. It is a fish story, but it's not a fish story, at least maybe the way people represent it today. Some say it's just a piece of fiction. It's a fish tale, just like the one you told about the fish you missed, right? No, this is not some fish tale. This is real history. And we're going to see that in Christ's mind, it's important history because he is going to link his own death and resurrection to this particular book. For another group of people who have problems with the miraculous, they don't always want to come right out and as the pastor of a church just say, well, this is fiction. So somewhat stealthily, they say, well, this is a parable, that this is um, some spiritual lesson that we can take and apply to our life. It's no different, they would say, than the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's, it's a story with a, mor- with a moral truth behind it. Well, um, we would be quick to say that there are parabolic portions in the Old Testament, not a lot, but there are some. We studied one uh, since we finished James. If you remember, Nathan the prophet went and and uh, preached to King David about uh, the rich man who took a poor man's ewe and barbecued him, and he said, you're the man. That was a parable with a message behind it. And they said, well, that's true with Jonah. It's just a legend, but it's a legend with a message. Again, the, the problem with that is when you study parables in Scripture, there's a certain characteristic of parabolic literature that this book certainly does not have. Um, It doesn't have any of those characteristics. Now, there's a third view. It's not the mythological view. It's not the parabolic view. It's the allegorical view. They say, well, this is a book of allegory. Now, how do they come to that? Because the word Jonah, Yonah in Hebrew, is the word for his name means dove. And in two places, once in the Psalms and once in the book of Hosea, Yonah, dove, is a reference to the people of Israel. And so they would say, therefore, Jonah is symbolic of the people of Israel. He was not an actual, literal, historical person, but he was a person who was symbolic of Israel and that there's deeper meaning uh, behind the story. And so they would say, just as Israel say, was to be a light to the nations, a witness to the Gentiles, even so Jonah was to be a light to the people of Nineveh. They would say, just as uh, Israel failed in her witness to the Gentile nations, even so, initially, Jonah failed in his witness to the Ninevites. Uh, They would say that when Jonah ended up captive in the belly of a great fish, even so, the people of Israel ended up captive under the Babylonians. Um, They would reason further that just as Jonah is regurgitated and delivered back to the place God wants him, At the end of 70 years, uh, the people who've been carried off by the Babylonians, they end up back in the land of Israel. 
Now, here's the challenge with that view. Um, There are certainly times in Scripture, by the way, where God gives typology. And so that's kind of what they've done. They've taken an allegory, and they might even say it's a prophetic allegory, that it's a type of sorts. The problem with that, and again, allegory is not foreign to the Bible. There's one allegory in the New Testament found in Galatians, and there are six allegories that are found in the Old Testament. But allegory is represented as allegory. Like in Galatians, Paul says, this is an allegory. So you can't just take any passage of Scripture and say, well, let me tell you what it really means and give the deeper meaning behind it. No, there are certainly prophetic types in the Scripture, but with every prophetic type in the Scripture, it's identified as such. And it's based on a literal historical event that took place. For instance, we often describe Abraham offering Isaac up there on top of Mount Moriah as a as a type of Christ, that just as Abraham gave his uniquely begotten son, God so loved the world, he gave his uniquely begotten son. Is that true? Well, yes, it is. Why do we know that? Because in the book of Hebrews, it tells us that Abraham offering Yitzhak is indeed a type. But it was a real historical event that that type was based on, just like Boaz was married to Ruth and he becomes a kinsman redeemer. He is a real historical person married to a real historical woman who becomes an illustration of what the Lord Jesus wants to do. But in order to escape the miraculous, they just say, well, this is an allegory. And there are many problems with that. One, with the typologies that we have, even if you want to call them an allegory, Everyone that we do have in Scripture, uh, all the typologies, it's based on a historical event, number one, and, and that's important. Number two, God gave language to communicate. Uh, he gave us language so we can understand it. And by the way, their so-called allegory falls apart because when they say, well, uh, Jonah, you know, he's captured by a great fish and then he's spit out. And so Israel is, uh, is captured by the Babylonians and then brought back. Well, number one, he ministers to the northern kingdom. It's the southern kingdom that's carried away by the Babylonians. But the devil disguises himself as an angel of light. And if he disguises himself as an angel of light, so don't his ministers, so don't his pastors. And one of the things that you often want to do when you find a new church is find out what they believe about the miraculous. Do they believe, for instance, Genesis 1 through 11 is historical? Or do they believe it's just uh, cute little parables to teach us spiritual messages? The Broadman commentary, which was kind of a standard commentary for the Southern Baptists, In the first edition, uh, they said Genesis 1 through 11 didn't actually happen. There There were just parables to teach us spiritual lessons. Well, when God's men got in charge, they rewrote the Broadman commentary, and they went with the historical Jewish view and the historical Christian view that Genesis 1 through 11 is history. You want to ask a pastor, do you believe Jonah was a real person swallowed by a real fish? regurgitated up on a real piece of real estate that he preached to a real group of people, or do you think he was just a fairy tale? Probe. Ask specifically. It's important. And so, number one, these reasons are silly 
because they go against what we know to be true of Scripture. So let me give you a fourth point of view of how I think you should take the book of Jonah. I think it's the only correct way to take it, and it's what I call the historical view. The historical view. And uh, in first, as I already mentioned, God gave language to communicate. If I tell you, well, after church today, I'm going to go to a seafood restaurant and enjoy some fish, you're not going to say, well, what the pastor really meant was he's going to go to the beach and he's going to go fishing and catch some fish. No, I meant what I said. I said what I meant. And God's word is no different. He says plainly what he means. You say, well, that's just your interpretation. Well, how do you know how to interpret the Bible? It's very simple. God left within the Scriptures how to interpret the Scriptures. For instance, when we studied the prophet Daniel, he's reading this prophet by the name of Jeremiah, the 25th chapter. And he's thinking, we've been up here in Babylon a while. I wonder how long. He goes, oh, 70 years. How did he understand that prophecy? Plain value, plain face value. When you see the New Testament, either the Lord Jesus or his apostles intersecting either with each other or with the Old Testament, how do they interpret it? Just the plain Literal interpretation. And, and I say literal with a sense of caution because sometimes when you say you believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible, the unbeliever can misunderstand it. When we say a literal interpretation, that was the historical way in which to describe the approach to the Scripture. I think maybe today a better way would be a plain interpretation or the historical grammatical interpretation. When we say a literal interpretation, we're not discounting that there are symbols and that there are figures of speech. But as we studied in the Revelation, we try to understand what the symbol means. How do you know what it means? Scripture interprets Scripture. The best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And when you understand what the symbol means, then you literally believe it. And so when God calls this great red dragon, we say, well, who is the great red dragon? Well, he interprets it for us. It's the devil. So we take the symbol, we understand what it literally means, and then we embrace it at face value. Uh, a second reason for not interpreting uh, it as an allegory or as a parable or as a fairy tale is, again, none of the records that we have in the Scripture and outside of the Scripture understand it that way. For instance, if you read Jewish literature, to this day, every single Orthodox Jew, now there are some other groups of Judaism that are just, I guess they're Jewish in name only, some of them even call themselves atheists, but I'm a Reformed Jew or I'm a conservative Jew. But the Orthodox Jew who takes the Bible at face value, and someday there's going to be a huge number of Orthodox Jews who are going to be one to Jesus. God's going to use 144,000 Jews to preach the gospel, to finish the great commission that we've been trying to do to every tribe, tongue, and nation. It will happen during the time of Jacob's trouble, the great tribulation. But every Orthodox Jew believes the book of Jonah to be an actual historical event. In addition, when you come to the church fathers, the church fathers is that generation of people who lived after the apostles died. And they left us some huge amount of writings. And there's the early church fathers, the late church fathers. How did they view the book of Jonah? As history, as actual, as literal, in fact, for 1,900 years virtually, there was one view. But remember, in the 19th century, the seeds of 
Charles Darwin and others were being sown, a denial that there's a creator God. Well, if you didn't believe that God created the heavens and the earth, if you don't believe that God created the plants, then how can you believe that God created, um, you know, a great fish in which to encompass Jonah? And so the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. But why is it that they do not want to embrace the plain reading of this book and other books of the Bible? Because they don't like its implications. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians? He said, a natural man does not receive or accept or embrace the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. Now, apart from the grace of God opening our hearts up to the truth of the gospel, when you ask an unbeliever to read and embrace the Scripture, he doesn't have the spiritual equipment in which to do it. Until you have a birth from above and you are indwelt by the Spirit of God and you are a new creature in Christ Jesus, you do not have the equipment to embrace Scripture. It's like asking a blind man to judge an art contest or a deaf man to evaluate a music recital. He doesn't have the equipment. And many times, of course, he doesn't like the implications. So people ask me, well, do you you interpret the Bible symbolically or literally? And I say, well, yes. Uh, I I interpret it literally and I interpret symbols. And then once I understand the symbol, I apply it literally. So let me give you um, three reasons why I reject the first three approaches, the parabolic, the mythological, or the allegorical approach. And again, the first one I've already mentioned is that for the first 1,900 years of church history, there was only one view. Jonah was a real historical person. And in Jewish Midrash, Midrash describes like Jewish commentary. Some of it's kind of weird, but still they always embraced Jonah as a real historical event. And so he's described in those terms. He's described as a historical person. You might want to put out in the margin next to verse 1, 1 Kings, or excuse me, 2 Kings 14, 25. Maybe you have it in your uh, notes out in the marginal reference, and you can just circle it. But next to verse 1 of Jonah 1, 1, put 2 Kings 14, 25. Let me read it to you. We are told in the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned 41 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. So here's this wicked king. Remember, northern kingdom, 20 kings, all wicked. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He rules in Israel. Remember, the capital is Samaria. He re-engaged the people not to go to Jerusalem as God dictated, where God's priests were, where God's orthodox way of worshiping him was still being followed. No, he, he, he had them worship in a different center, and so the Samaritan woman. And so notice further, you wrote out next to verse 1, verse 25, notice, He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant, Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was of Gath-Hefer. Now, this brief record gives us some very important historical information about Jonah. Number one, he preached to this man by the name of Jeroboam, and it was a rather pleasant message. You know, everything that prophets preached was not always hard to listen to. Some of it was a blessing. 
And he said to Jeroboam, this wicked king, God's actually going to expand the borders and bless you and your people. You say, why would God do that to a wicked king? Because God loved him and wanted him to repent. Do you remember what Paul wrote in the New Testament in Romans 2, verse 4? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? This verse tells us that the riches and kindness and tolerance and patience of God should lead us to repentance. The blessings that God brings on a person's life gives you space, not an excuse, but space to repent. You see, many times we think, well, you know, everything's good with me and God. I mean, the bank account's full, nobody's sick, I got a good job, God is obviously approving my life. Not necessarily. Very often, God brings the blessings on your life to show you of your need to repent. And here's Jeroboam. He, he should have thought, man, I know I'm going against the God of Israel. I'm worshiping all these false gods. But here his prophet comes, Jonah, and he tells me, Yahweh, the God of Israel, that he's going to bless me and expand my borders. He should have repented, but he didn't. So it doesn't necessarily mean that God is blessing you, that everything is right. Now, sometimes... God will let the bottom fall out to get your attention. But not always. Sometimes God uses blessings to get our attention. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the wicked. Um, but listen further to what Paul says in the next verse. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So to presume on God's blessing is to be rebellious in nature. And he says, you're storing up. Jesus told the same word, to store up treasure in heaven. Speaking to those who are saved, that we're to lay up treasure in heaven so that when we get there and there's the uh, judgment of the just, he will reward us accordingly. Salvation is a gift. It's by grace. And then when you avail yourself to that grace as a saved person and God ministers through you and to you, he allows you to lay up treasure in heaven. Well, in the same way, these unbelieving Jews in Paul's day were storing up wrath in the day of wrath. Hell is a terrible place for anyone who goes. But it's not the same for everyone who goes. Somehow, in the perfect sovereignty of God and in his perfect justice, he will mete out wrath accordingly. By the way, again, there's a lot of hard things that a preacher has to preach. Jonah's going to go and preach and remind them that the behavior of the Ninevites is like a stench in the nostrils of God. But sometimes a preacher can come and give of the great blessings of God but in the midst of our blessing, we need to be careful who the blesser is. Do you remember Moses just before he dies up there on top of Mount Nebo? He gathers all of Israel, and he gives them that one final message. It's recorded in the book of Deuteronomy. And listen to what God said through him. Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied. Then watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods, any of 
the gods of the peoples who surround you, for the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you, and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. And that's exactly what happened in Israel's history. God blessed this King Jeroboam. He expanded their borders. They were number one, but he didn't repent. God blessed America. I'm not saying that we're a nation without problems, but God blessed this nation like few nations in the history of man. More missionaries have been sent from the United States of America than any other single nation in the history of man. And if you're God Almighty and you want to get the best news of your son out to the world, you're going to bless a nation that's going to take that seriously. And in the early days, America was a difficult place to live. And the people cried out for survival. And God answered and blessed them. And now we're a nation of abundance. And so we've gone from approximately 80% of Americans gathering on the Lord's day to 20%. Why? Because we've forgotten God. Yes, we have a president who's religious, who goes to mass every week, who put his hand on God's holy war word and swore to defend this nation. And yet he who acknowledges God as the same president who is in favor of abortion and homosexuality and transgenderism and like so many other politicians, all kinds of wickedness because we have forgotten the living God. So here's a real historical person. His name is Jonah, the son of Amity. He is from a place called Gath-Hefer. Gath-Hefer is three miles from Nazareth. You know Nazareth, the place where Jesus was brought to shortly after his birth and was raised there and preached there. Well, he's preaching this prophet. He was raised in the same neighborhood. So he's talking about a real person who ministered to real people, to a real king, who's from a real city called gath Affair. So you really have to stretch and twist and ignore the divine inspiration of Scripture and to say that the Bible's lying, to say that this man was not a real historical person. In fact, 2 Kings reminds us that because of their disobedience, what does God later do? He rises up a couple more prophets to take the message that Jonah gave, like the prophet Hosea. We call it the book of endless love. And God basically says, how dare you? How dare you take my love and my kindness and ignore me? And then he raises up another prophet. His name is Amos. And his message is very simple. You rebel against the dictates of God Almighty, and I am going to judge you through the Assyrians. Now, keep that in mind, because we're going to see that's very important as we work through the book of Jonah. And so we learn the historical nature of this man. He's a prophet. His name is Jonah. He is the son of Amity. He is from the city of gath He preaches to a real king. He's a historical person. There's no other way to take him. Now, 
There's a second reason why the book of Jonah bears the stamp of historicity. And again, it's the fact that those closest to the writing understood it that way. The church fathers and again, those Jewish commentators. That's how they understand it. But let me tell you why people don't want to accept it as history. It's because of the miraculous nature of this book. You read the book of Jonah. It's only 48 verses. You could read it in a short time. There's like more miracles per square inch than in few verses, in few books in all of the Bible. I mean, think about it. Here in the opening chapter, God hurls a great wind on the sea, Jonah 1.4. Then after the sailors are on board and they're casting lots, who's responsible for this in the providence of God, where does the lot fall to out of all the men on that ship? To Jonah. Then Jonah is cast into the sea, and instantly the sea stops its raging, another miracle. And just about the time he's ready to drown, God sends one of his great submarines, and he, he, he takes his prophet, and for three days and three nights, he's not eaten up by the gastric juices of this huge animal, but he's preserved. God commands the fish to spit Jonah out on dry land. He preaches the shortest sermon recorded just about anywhere in the Bible. And what happens? The greatest revival in history takes place. If you remember, after they repent, he's, God sends this scorching hot wind, and, and he's kind of moaning and groaning, and then God supernaturally makes this plant comes up overnight and gives him some shade, and he's enamored with the plant because God's going to teach him some important lessons, so he sends a worm to eat the plant, and the plant dies, and he's moaning and groaning, and he begs that it would be better to die than to live. I mean, miracle after miracle, God's fingerprints are all the way through this inspired book. By the way, the, the problem that many have today with the historicity of Jonah is the exact same problem that Christ encountered. You can read about it in the Gospels. Um, let me read to you an occasion. Uh, it's at the end of Christ's public ministry. He'd already cleansed the temple. Um, he confronts the, uh, after his triumphal entry, the, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees, and, and they're ticked because of what he did in the temple and all these miracles he's performing. And they ask this question, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? In other words, you didn't get the authority from us so it can't be the real thing. And so Jesus responded to their question with a question, I'll tell you by what authority if you first answer my question. He says the baptism of John was from what source, from heaven or from men? And so they get in their little holy huddle and they begin to confer and, and they're on really the horns of a dilemma. They began reasoning among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say to us, then why didn't you believe, to, believe him? Why didn't you respond to his ministry? But if we say from men, we fear the people, for they regard John as a prophet. And so they come out of their little conference, and they answer Jesus, and they say, we don't know. I can hear some guys on the sidelines, man, I'm paying your salary. I just gave my tithe. Here's the most significant person who's shown up in 400 years, and you don't know? What are we paying you for? 
So Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You see, the problem was not with knowledge. They could not deny the miracles of the Messiah. They couldn't deny the authority with which Christ taught in this final week where the people were moved and just like, wow, there's no one like this. They couldn't deny that. Their problem was not with knowledge. It was an issue of the heart. It was an issue of the will. And if a person will not embrace God's word, then they will reject God's word. There's no such thing as neutrality. You're either for God or you're not. And unless you embrace the supernatural nature of God's word, then you'll reject it. Why do men reject it? Why do these men reject it? Because they were self-righteous. See, the very message that Jesus preached was that you cannot save yourself, that it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick, that I didn't come to save the righteous, they came to call sinners to repentance. They didn't like that message. They sought, Paul said, to establish a righteousness of their own, rejecting the righteousness that God gifts to people through grace. And so in their self-righteousness, they rejected Jesus. Some people reject him for moral reasons. You mean you literally interpret the Bible? Well, yeah, I, I take the plain grammatical historical interpretation of the Bible. You literally interpret? Yeah, yeah, I do. You know what they're really saying? They're saying, I don't like the way you interpret the Scripture because you are saying that my abortion, my premarital sex, my extramarital sex, my homosexuality, or whatever it may be is wrong. And people don't like that. So people will either reject it in their self-righteousness or they will reject it in their immorality. Now, there's a third reason why I accept the book of Jonah, and I suppose it's the clenching argument as history. It's because that's what Jesus believed. Hold your finger here and turn to the gospel of Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, if you're new to the Bible, it's the very first book in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew chapter 12. And uh, it's an important uh, section of Scripture because it was the occasion, and we'll come back to it later, I hope, in our study of Jonah. It's an important section of Scripture because Jesus is confronting the scribes and the Pharisees uh, over some miracles that he had done, and they said they couldn't deny the miracles. He had just done a triple miracle, so they denied the source of the miracle. And they said, well, what's being done isn't being pulled off by God Almighty. It's being pulled off by the devil. And of course, if you know this section, he deals with the sin called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And so we read here in Matthew 12, um, verse 38, then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He just did a triple miracle. We want to see a sign from you. And why do they want to see a sign? Just to have another reason to reject him. So he answered them, verse 39, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it, but, he said, the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, it's not always wrong to have a sign in the sense that uh, God gave signs and miracles to confirm the messenger. The messenger was confirmed by the miracles. Not everyone did miracles in Scripture. Only a handful of people at certain segments of time. Uh, Moses and Joshua did the first cluster of miracles. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they never did miracles. Hundreds of years went by. No one did a miracle until Elijah and Elisha come on the scene. 
Hundreds of years go by. A few people have miracles done to them, like Daniel, like Jonah, but no one does a miracle until Christ and the apostles come. And after they die, those miracles end up stopping through men. God can still do a miracle today, but through men, no. He did it only in the great changes of biblical history, and the next cluster is still in the future. He'll do it during the time of the great tribulation period. So it's not always wrong to see a miracle because God will often confirm the messenger through the miracle. Gideon, he was already a man of faith. He was going into war, but he wanted a confirmation, a sign from God in order to know that God was going with him. Well, these scribes and Pharisees, they had had all the miracles they needed. If they had just read the Scripture and see some of those unique miracles that Messiah alone would do, they should have been convinced that Jesus was who He claimed to be. But they didn't like His authority over their life. And so He says what they are doing, as Luke says, only an evil generation does. Yet no sign shall be given to you but the sign of Jonah the prophet. He calls them an evil porneros in an adulterous generation. He is describing their evil towards man, their adultery towards God. God will often use sexual sin to compare man's unfaithfulness. In the Old Testament, God is married to the people of Israel. In the New Testament, Christ, so to speak, is married to the church. And so when we are unfaithful to the Lord, we have committed spiritual adultery. So he says, no sign will be given to you, yet the sign of Jonah. 4, verse 40, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Furthermore, Luke sheds some additional light. Let me read Luke eleven twenty nine and 30. This generation, he said, is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation." And so Jesus makes a parallel between the sign that Jonah was to the Ninevites to his own resurrection. And it's not by accident. Jesus doesn't say, well, just as like the allegory Jonah was. No. The Ninevites believed that what happened to Jonah actually happened. That's why he had their attention. And Jesus likens that literal historical fact to his own resurrection. And so furthermore, he says in verse 41, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, please note, Jesus regarded the repentance of the Ninevites, this generation of Ninevites. There's a later generation, 100 years later, he sends another prophet, Nahum. In this generation, they have kids and grandkids, and the generations that follow repent of their parents' repentance. But this particular generation of Ninevites will be able to stand up in the judgment, and by their response to the revelation that God brought through Jonah, it will condemn these unbelieving Jews. I mean, if the Ninevites could have repented with the limited knowledge that they had, How much more should of these Jewish people in Jesus' day have repented? If that were not enough, he adds, the queen of the south, verse 42, shall rise up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Beyond the response of the Ninevites, there's the queen of Sheba, the queen of the south. She heard about 
Solomon and his wisdom and how God had blessed him like no other king in history to date. She comes from the ends of the earth, a Hebraism to describe about as far as anyone could travel in the first century, uh, excuse me, in the, in the ninth century BC. Uh, from the ends of the earth, about 1,200 miles, and she comes to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And yet Jesus, he is the embodiment of wisdom. He is God in human flesh. And if she could respond to Solomon, they certainly should have responded to the message and the wisdom that the Lord Jesus brought. And so here in the opening verse of Jonah 1.1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Now, I spent a lot of time on this background because I want you to understand that this man was a real person with a real genealogy with real things that happened to his life. How are we going to apply it? Let me make three suggestions as we close. Number one, a rejection of the historicity of Jonah is a rejection of Jesus. When I came to Community Bible Church some 30 years ago, there was a pastor in a Southern Baptist church who was moving his church to Cooperative Baptist. Whenever you see Cooperative Baptist, you ought to raise red flag in your mind because Cecil Sherman, their founder, started on the premise that the Bible is not authoritative, that it's not inerrant. Now, you can read the doctrinal statements of some churches in town that are cooperative Baptists. We believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. They've added that because I've preached too much against cooperative Baptists. They use the same words but a different dictionary. They don't mean what Jesus meant by verbal plenary inerrancy. So here is this Southern Baptist pastor who ruined a lot of churches in our county because after he retired, he went from church to church to church and was interim pastor and destroyed all these churches, led them into the road of liberalism. I'd hate to meet God being an agent of the devil, getting people to question the authority of God's Word. So he taught a course at USCB, and a number of our enlisted guys would go there and take a course working on a degree, and they'd come back, and some of them said, oh, a course in religion, I can get credit for it, this might be interesting, I get to study the Bible, and they'd come back week after week, and he denies the historicity of Genesis 1 through 11. He said that Jonah was not a real person, that that's just a parable to teach us a spiritual lesson. How do they get around all the things that we studied? I'll tell you how he did it, and it's a common way liberals do. They would say, well, we can't deny that Jesus represented Jonah as a real historical person, but he was just accommodating himself to the common beliefs of the day. It's called the accommodation theory. So since uh, the Jewish people in my day believe that God literally created the world, since the Jewish people in my day believed that there was a real man by the name of Noah who built an ark, since the Jewish people in my day believed that there was a real man named Jonah who was swallowed by a great fish, rather than confuse them, I'll just accommodate myself to a myth that they embrace. That is blasphemous. I have commentaries in my library that that's literally what they say. That is calling our Lord Jesus a deceiver, a liar a sinner, and in which case he can in no way be the Savior of the world. Look, I'm going to go with the plain meaning of Scripture. I'm going to go with what Jesus said, and he linked his resurrection to the miracle of Jonah. Secondly, a rejection of the historicity of Jonah is an indication of a hard heart. It's an indication of a hard heart. 
Now, people who reject what God has recorded in Scripture, the Word of God which is alive and living and sharper than a two-edged sword, they're nothing but people with a hard heart. Do you remember the, um, the rich man and a parable that Jesus describes? Some say it's not a parable. In either case, it, it doesn't change its meaning. Uh, if it is a parable, it's a unique parable and that there are names given. But whether a parable or not, um, the truth is there, every single word of it. But this rich man dies and he goes to hell, to Hades. That's where lost people go today. In the Old Testament, it was called Sheol, and there were two compartments. There was righteous Sheol, Abraham's bosom. There was unrighteous Sheol. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he emptied out, the Scripture teaches, righteous Sheol. And so now, absent from the body, they are immediately present with the Lord. But unrighteous Sheol, Hades, still continues. That's where lost people go when they die. And someday God will take Hades, and it will continue in a place called the Lake of Fire. So this man dies, and he's in Hades, and he asks for a sign. He said, I beg you, Father, speaking of Abraham, that you send to my father's that you send to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that they may warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. So Christ speaks of this rich man who dies. He dies and goes to hell, not because he's rich, but because he's an unbeliever. And he reminds us, and it's one aspect of hell, that in hell you have memory. There may be someone listening to me today and you haven't received Christ. If you die that way, you will remember the sermon. You will remember a warning that a pastor gave you on this day in December. This man remembered his memory wasn't foggy. It was clear. I've got five brothers, and I certainly don't want them to come to this place. Give them a sign. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They have the Torah, Moses. They have the rest of the Bible, the Nephi'im. They've got the Old Testament. That's all they need. Let them hear them. No, 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 Father Abraham. If someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. You see, if a man will not believe what God has plainly said, it just shows he has a hard heart. Listen, the Word of God is like any, different from any other book. It's alive, it's sharper than a two-edged sword. I know that every time I open the Scripture, either with believers or unbelievers, that there is a power to God's Word that no other book has. Even if the unbeliever says, I don't believe the Bible, he does. Because the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. He knows it to be true. And his point is, is listen, if, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they listen if someone rises from the dead. And a short throw later, there's a man by the name of Lazarus who's dead for four days, and Jesus brings him up from the grave. No one can deny it, so what do they want to do? They want to get rid of the evidence. They want to kill Lazarus, and not only do they want to kill Lazarus, the Bible says they want to kill the Lord Jesus who did the miracle. So it is only an evil and an adulterous relationship. We, we, we think, well, the sign from heaven, some miracle is the clincher. Not always. Faith comes from hearing in hearing by the Word of God. One final application, a rejection of the historicity of Jonah can result in eternal damnation. Now, we don't have time to study it today, and it deserves a sermon in itself, but God willing, we're coming back to it. But there's a parable of the homeless demon that 
Jesus continued when he spoke to this sin blasphemy of the spirit. Let me read it to you. Now, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. This is the way it will be with this evil generation. Again, the parable is a whole sermon in itself. But here are the Pharisees who are proud, who on the outside, they had cleaned up their house. But on the inside, they were not regenerated by the Spirit because of their rejection of Jesus. And you can kind of clean yourself up on the outside and make yourself more presentable before men. But unless you are born again from above and regenerated on the inside, it doesn't mean anything. And when you hear the truth and you reject the truth, your second state becomes worse than the first. Why? Because you've hardened your heart towards God Almighty, and it becomes even more difficult to believe. But if you are here today and you're unsure of your salvation, if you will admit your state, that you're a sinner, unable to save yourself, and come to Christ and put your faith where he put your sin on the cross and ask him to forgive you and to change you and to make you a new person, he'll do it in an instance. Now, our Father, I thank you that we get the chance to study the prophet Jonah. Help us, we pray, in the days ahead to pay close attention to what this book says. We pray that it will become a part of our life, not so that we'll become more intelligent sinners, but more like your son, the Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the authority that you placed on this book through your quotation of it. Help someone today who is unsure of their salvation to call upon you to say, Lord Jesus, save me. And help us when we go out this week with your word that is alive not to be ashamed, to go with the authority of heaven knowing that it is a penetrating book that pierces the heart like no other word that man can hear. And thank you that your word never returns void without you accomplishing the purpose for which you've sent it. We bless your name for that reason. Amen.